Well, I think it's time we started the podcast with something culturally enriching that's also relevant for decision-making. Great. It's 2024. We need to stop opening this podcast with terrible jokes. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. <laughs> if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. <laughs> if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. <laughs> Yours is the earth and everything that's in it. I'm sure the audience will appreciate that. You don't think it was too long, though? Well, I'm going to put this entirely in the hands of the AI auto-editor. Welcome to Decision Nerds. I'm Paul Richards. And I'm Joe Wiggins. In this podcast, we analyse decisions, where they can go wrong, and how we can make them more effectively. We talk with researchers and industry experts about the art and science of understanding human behaviour. If you want to understand yourself, your team, or board better, there's something here for you. Rudyard Kipling's If tackles some of life's great challenges, and one of those is failure. Failure might be part of human existence, but it's something that we can often find hard to acknowledge. But if we can't acknowledge something, then we can't manage it, and this is something that's particularly vital in the context of investment management. Because we're constantly dealing with uncertainty, rapid change and high expectations. The reality is no matter how talented we are, many of the choices that we make are going to fail. To thrive in this kind of environment, we need to have better quality discussions about the F word. Joe, I know failure is something that you've been thinking about recently. Tell the audience about your recent post. Yeah, I don't consider myself an expert in many things, but failure is, is something definitely on that list. And I've been pondering the idea of investing mistakes. And there's this common narrative that investors, professional investors and private investors need to think more about their mistakes so they can learn and improve their their processes. And that seems quite obvious and self-evident that we don't do it enough because we don't like it or are uncomfortable thinking about getting things wrong. But I actually think it's really difficult to know what an investing mistake is. But because investing is inherently noisy, so there's not a clean link always between process and outcome. So you can have a good process and bad outcome and, and vice versa. So it's quite difficult to know what is a mistake and also what you should do about that mistake. So I've grouped them into to three different categories of, of mistake, um, which I think will be hopefully helpful in, in considering when things go wrong, is it something we should worry about? Is it something we can change or do something about? Or is it something that's just a natural consequence of, of our approach to investing and operating in a in an uncertain world? So happy to, to talk through those three if you think they'll be, be useful, Paul. I do think it's useful. And I think the way you framed it is a way that most investors will understand. So why don't we look at your particular structure. And then what I'd like to do after that is overlay something else on top of it, because I too think that thinking about failure is one of the most important things that we need to do, principally to allow us to make better decisions in the future. And an author that we've both spent time 
reading the work of is Amy Edmondson of Harvard. Um, she certainly influenced a lot of my thinking in regards to psychological safety. She recently wrote a book called The Right Kind of Wrong. And there are some structures in there in terms of naming the types of failure that I think are really useful. So let's start with your particular investing issues and try and map those on to Amy Edmondson's framework. Sure. So I think there are three types of investing mistakes in very broad terms. One is a mistake of beliefs. It's what you believe to be true that leads you astray from the very start. So things go wrong because you have erroneous foundational beliefs or your philosophy is in some way, some way flawed. So it's not even about the process being applied in an incorrect way. It's not even necessarily about outcomes being bad. It's just about you believe something that isn't true or is at least there's very low probability of it being true. So from the start, you are in a very difficult position. So take an example of this. Let's say someone designs an investment approach to tactically allocate across asset classes based on a three-month view. Now, after a period of running that strategy, it's, it's very likely that their performance, uh, to put it bluntly, won't be very good because it's incredibly difficult to consistently predict short-term market movements. I would suggest nobody can do it consistently well. So this is a problem of beliefs because our instinct will be if it doesn't work, let's try some different inputs, let's alter the, the process, let's get some different information. Can I refine it in some way to make it better? But that doesn't really matter if your starting point is deeply flawed. So you, you believe something inherently that is, is erroneous, that you can time markets over short horizons. Um, that belief is untrue, therefore process is unlikely to function and your outcomes over time are also unlikely to be to be good. So that's the starting point, foundational belief mistakes. And these are problematic because they're so difficult to change. Obviously, our beliefs are wrapped up in, in our identity. So it's very easy for us to alter our investment process and make refinements to our process. Really, really hard to change what we believe. And that's an investing concept, but also outside of investing um, particularly in the more polarised world we're in, people very rarely change their mind and they even more rarely change their beliefs. So it's really hard if your starting point as an investor is believing something that is flawed uh, because you're very unlikely to then change change tack with that. But you should always be thinking about as an investor, is there something fundamental I'm getting wrong here and fundamental that I am I'm believing and building my process around that is actually not accurate or makes the odds of success incredibly low? So that's why I frame as belief mistakes. You're someone who's spent a decent amount of time as a fund allocator. Have you actually seen anyone who has actually come out successfully and, and said, I used to think X, I now think Y, here's the reasons for it, here's what I'm doing to the portfolio. I asked the question because I had a discussion with a very thoughtful investor who's been a CIO and a CEO recently. And he was talking to me just about the pressures that he's faced over his career, not to deviate from what's been said before. But when he looked at some of his investing idols or people who'd really made money over the long term, he cited Sir John Templeton as a perfect example. There may have been two or three times where he'd really reoriented his investment approach. Key part of that is likely to be around beliefs. Now, John Templeton, by definition, is rare. Are there other people that you've seen do that? So it's interesting. I think it's very rare to do it in the right way. Perhaps the most um, prominent and pertinent example would be Warren Buffett starting out more as a, a Ben Graham acolyte 
last drag on the cigar but value investor and becoming more quality orientated um, more akin to uh, Charlie Munger's approach through time so definitely in evolution about Buffett's approach to value over the course of his career in part a change in beliefs in part a change due to the size of assets managed perhaps um, but I think what you do see on the flip side of that is investors actually changing what they believe at the wrong time so you can frame it as a mistake to believe the wrong thing you can also believe the right thing but because performance is capricious believing the right thing might lead to poor returns for a significant period of time so then you capitulate on the thing you believe that was right and adopt something totally erroneous erroneous so i imagine there were quite a few during various um bubbles in markets where um, people have capitulated on their valuation led orientated investment approach uh, and adopted something slightly more aggressive um, slightly more in tune with the, whatever was driving the bubble and made the wrong call about what they what they believe so it can can definitely work in both ways i've definitely changed my views through time as well on certain things the, the, the thing that i would recall most readily is i usually much more of the view that highly concentrated approaches were the right way to tackle active investment in in equities because you want to be distinct from the index and if you know your companies very well then you should be should be concentrated in those and my belief around that has changed through time based on some bitter experience some (laughs) reading some learning but it's it's really difficult to do and the more explicit you are about what you believe the harder it is to roll that roll that back so the second mistake is what i would call a process mistake so this is where even if our investment beliefs are credible and sensible and robustly supported, we can still make errors. And that's about there being some problem in the way that we implement our beliefs. And I think there's two types here. One is technical. And here's it's just a weakness in our analysis or we're not very good at doing the analysis or we use the wrong information. So something can be true and we can believe it to be to be true prior to our um, going back to our early conversation about concentrated investing maybe it works for some people but um, maybe it's not right for me um, given my skill set or capability so you can be sensible sensibly aligned in terms of your beliefs but may have a process breakdown so can you implement that process well and the way I frame this in the blog post is it might be reasonable to believe that you can lose 10 pound over the next six months but if we don't have any idea of how to design a sensible diet and exercise regularly we're probably not going to achieve it. So you can have a clear gap between belief and process. And the next part of it, so that's the technical part of it and not really being able to implement your beliefs. The other part, I think, is behavioural. And this is the ability to enact and maintain a plan. Classes is a chronic and maybe pernicious problem for investors. So we can have a sound set of foundational beliefs and a robust process, but we fail because we haven't understood our own behavioural foibles, our own behavioural limitations. And this is a major issue not only for individuals, but also for institutions who spend a great deal of time kind of trying to refine their process. We've made these tweaks to the process, we've got new inputs, new information, but often seemingly little on whether they've created a decision-making environment that is supportive of the desired approach. I have met countless, countless managers uh, of various guises, fund managers of various guises who will talk about their long-term investment approach and not talk at all about the behavioural reality and behavioural challenges of trying to run a portfolio over the long term and not losing a job, not using losing clients as you go through those inevitable vacillations in, in performance, which will be inevitably protracted and, and painful. So you need to have the behavioural rigour 
to actually enact processes as well. And uh, just to uh, extend the metaphor a little bit here, so let's say we've got a good plan now for losing that £10 over, over six months. Um, so our beliefs are right, our process technically is right, so we've got a plan, but we've ignored the behavioural reality of going to the gym or not eating that cake. So it's a behavioural challenge of actually carrying out the plan that we've laid. So you, your process, I think, can fail technically or it can fail behaviourally. That makes perfect sense to me. What, from your perspective, stops people either thinking or talking about the behavioural issues? Is it a gap of knowledge? That could be the case, but there's certainly been far more written about it. Is it the fear of talking to the outside world about it? There's definitely there's definitely a bias blind spot where, I would say there's definitely a bias blind spot where we see the biases in other people, but don't observe them in ourselves or don't believe that we are prone to them. We also think that by reading Think and Fast and Slow, that gives us some kind of protection from making behavioural mistakes. So we don't think about it or apply the concepts of behavioural science broadly enough. I think there's also an institutional imperative and the incentives that we have certainly for professional investors is to ignore some of those behavioural challenges or certainly put them to one side and if our job depends on us taking more short-term views if our job depends on us chasing performance or unwinding positions that that aren't working then we're very likely to do that and more likely to do that and to build robust processes to make good long-term prudent investment decisions so I think there's myriad reasons why we don't think about behaviour enough. I'm sure you've got, got ideas on this as well. I think there is a knowledge gap. There is a, a bias blind spot gap. But I think it's also that there's only a very small number of people who feel confident enough to talk about failure explicitly. And part of that is not having the language to be able to actually do that and to, to worry how people on the other side of the conversation are going to react. If you knew you could have a rational conversation with a client about why you were taking decision x then perhaps more people would be minded to do it but there's a real risk asymmetry there you come clean with a client you're honest with them about it uh, and they take an irrational decision you lose the mandate and you've got to then explain that to your ceo about why the revenue's lost i think too much of that probably happens in our industry. And interestingly, going back to one of your early points, Buffett was one of the few examples that you'd see from time to time saying, don't give me money now. But I don't think I've ever heard an asset manager say that to the outside world. Now is a terrible time to give us money. Now, dear listener, I should say here when we're talking about repeatable errors... (laughs) Joe and I are having a slight laugh here because uh, Joe is failing to be able to turn off notifications on his computer. We'll have edited out the first couple, but I think just in the spirit of openness, we'll leave this in the the final pod. Joe, what's creating the error here? I I was just thinking that I was going to make a point about our first reaction to making a mistake or something going wrong is ego defence. That is, blame something else or someone else for what was going wrong. And I, I'm literally thinking that now, saying, I shut my Microsoft Teams down and I have no idea why it's still making noises. So it must be someone else's fault um, or some problem, some glitch in the in the system. But in all seriousness, I think it's an important point to think of that our instinctive reaction to making mistakes is to defend ourselves. And 
particularly in a professional capacity, that becomes even more important when we're playing the game of developing our career, building our credibility, trying to sell things. The last thing we want to do is say, that was a mistake I made because of some psychological or behavioural failing. Particularly as no one else is saying that either. So you're the one with the, with the issue that no one else is suffering from. So we make decisions and we judge failures in an attempt to protect our own ego and our own identity and position. And from a wider business perspective, we judge failures in the context of how can we keep clients invested with us and not tell them that the mistake was our fault, but something else happened. There was an unpredictable event. We were right, but um, so it's really, really important to think about how hard it is to acknowledge errors, to acknowledge mistakes and to get better um, because most cultures, most environments, business cultures and environments are not supportive of that type of acknowledgement and that type of psychological safety, which I'm sure we'll talk about on it in a little while. Yeah, I think um, let's jump into that when we look at typology of failures. So let's finish the asset management element of it by just talking about this final issue related to outcome. So outcome mistakes are probably one of the toughest parts of being an investor because, as I said earlier, there's no clean and consistent link between our beliefs and processes and the outcomes we receive. So we can make really smart, evidence-based decisions and end up looking like an idiot or appear to be a genius from doing something objectively stupid. The financial markets are fickle and unpredictable and we will experience plenty of bad luck and just see things that don't work out in the way we expected. Uh, The future is uncertain, it's noisy, it's chaotic. And the key danger of this is that we give up on sensible investment strategies that work because we misinterpret the results or struggle to accept the reality that sensible, strong, long-term investing comes with plenty of of pain. So outcomes can go wrong from a a number of reasons. It can just be bad luck, just misfortune. It can be a goal mismatch. So lots of investors will assess performance over the last month when they're making a five or 10 year investment view. And that's like saying after running a marathon for one mile, I'm judging my performance after that mile rather than thinking about where I am at the end. It's a very perverse behaviour, but quite common to have that goal mismatch. Um, I think there's a misunderstanding about diversification. So being sensibly diversified means that some of your portfolio positions, some of your holdings will not work as well as others and will not work as well in the environment that transpires. That's the nature of being appropriately diversified. And the other final point is there is a natural failure rate in investment decision making that we all know about. Everyone discusses the fact that a good fund manager might have a hit rate of 55% or 60% if they're incredibly, incredibly good and maybe maybe a bit lucky. But if you've got a natural failure rate and are talented and that failure rate is 40%, you're going to live through 40% of your decisions being wrong, even if you're good. And that's a feature of the process, not something you can amend or adjust in any any meaningful way Uh, and really difficult to accept that so really tough to live in a world where you will get bad outcomes even if you're doing the right things that's just hard to accept remember vividly the time as a young researcher when i started to get a handle on this and it was crikey that's a worse number than i naively expected i think something that i've always thought about is does the end client understand the nature of those numbers and if they did 
what would they actually do? This was a question when I was a researcher and supporting consultants. I'd ask them, how do they think their clients would react? Would they still choose to go active if they understood the nature of the game? And just something to think about maybe as we go through the pod on this one is the concept of loss aversion across pretty much every domain that we work in, or certainly that researchers have looked at. It's a generally a two to one upside to downside ratio. If we were simply having these discussions where we were acknowledging all of these issues, would clients just on the whole stop investing? I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that now, but maybe as we talk through some of the other issues, you can just give your perspective on that. Yeah, I think setting expectations is incredibly important for all investors and investors with erroneous expectations or um, expectations that are out of touch with the reality of wherever investment approach you're adopting means that behaviorally you're very unlikely to stay the course even if it is the right course for you to be charting. So we've looked at your investment framework which is essentially tackling beliefs, processes and outcomes. Let's try and map on top of that Amy Edmondson's work and she looks at three basic types of failures and the first is something she calls basic failures and these are the most preventable and they tend to be in known territory that's generally a single cause uh, and that can be anything from inattention or overconfidence or faulty assumptions and if we think about that from an investment context it could be something you alluded to earlier on you have a highly predictive model but you just stick the wrong data into that model. Or again, if you're looking to do a complex transaction for a client in a fund, you just price the units in the wrong way. These are known issues that can be managed by things like checklists or having processes that look to capture those errors and find ways around them. The second area is what she calls complex failures. These are multi-causal and often involve the world changing or some bad luck. There's no point looking for a single factor here because there probably isn't one. And it generally happens, as I said, when some kind of external or uncontrollable factor enters the mix. I think this is the typical thing that you were actually talking about here, where you're trying to figure out, is it me, something that I've done wrong, or is it something that happens in the broader market? Now, these type of things, you may see the ability to correct them in a team environment, but what it requires there is high levels of psychological safety where people can call out, no, I think you've got point X wrong. I know that better than you. If we think about it in the research literature, it's typically something like the Challenger space shuttle failure, where certain people were aware of certain things that could have stopped that disaster happening, but just didn't feel that they could actually speak up. The last thing that she talks about is intelligent failures, and these are ones that you can characterize as being good and necessary for progress. We can think about that most classically in something like drug development, where you're trying to sort a novel problem, you don't know actually how to do it, and you're highly unlikely to get to the right answer first time. Here, in an investment perspective, we could think about something like um, Bitcoin, for example, where you're trying to bring a standard set of investment beliefs and processes into something that is perhaps genuinely new. The challenge here is that if we want people to sign up for a drug test, we generally tell them they're on a drug test and they might get a good outcome from it or they might not. I suspect there's, in the investment world, more than a few instances of people doing a drug trial 
where the end client isn't being told they're actually in a drug trial. And maybe it could be better for everyone if they were told that they were, to your point about erroneous um, sets of expectations. If it does fail spectacularly, then they'll know that and there won't be too much grief. So how do you think those map on to what you were talking about? I think complex failures are the most observable in the investment world, both because financial markets are fiendishly complex things, but also you tend to have certainly professional environments, which are also complex entities as well. So you have this complex system of decision making in an investment organization, and that's just not the investment team, but all the different elements that might have some involvement in how decisions are are made and then you're applying it to a complex system a complex and um, unpredictable system and layering complexity upon complexity tends to result in bad outcomes and certainly outcomes that you weren't expecting so i think it's really important when you're dealing with a complex system for whoever's making decisions about that system to try and simplify it as much as possible basic failures are interesting because there are elements there which i think speak to behavioral certain behavioral aspects of investing so things such as checklists can easily be ported across to ideas like rebalancing or ideas like phased investment into into positions. Because you can have mistakes and clear failures in investment decision making, which are down to individual or group biases or limitations, which actually I think are probably boiled down to pretty basic failures in, in human judgment. Intelligent failures, I think, are, are probably more rare in investing. But I do take the principle that when when new things are being applied that are largely untested, then they should be sized appropriately. I think in the world of investing, what you get is you get back tests of investment strategies with all the problems of the back tests that you've never seen a bad one that then launch and performance falls off a cliff as soon as it's launched, which I wouldn't call a, an, an intelligent failure. But there are, there are principles there around that are similar to intelligent failures, but maybe it's an unintelligent failure because it's not appropriately robustly tested because it's not sized the inclination in investing is not just the inclination but you have the ability in investing to bring new things to market incredibly quickly when they have not been tested so i think what you might think is an intelligent failure is probably just a complex failure and a problem with incentives and the and the system let's move on to some of the more psychological issues about why we find it difficult to talk about and ultimately address failure. We've talked a little bit about them already, but I think Amy Emerson does have a nice framework for this. Um, she sees three particular things at play, confusion, aversion, and fear, and each of those have some robust solutions to them. So firstly, let's look at confusion. And I think it comes back to this point that you said about layers and layers of complexity. One of the areas that can stop us from wanting to look failure in the eye is just simply not being able to figure out what has happened and why, and almost just staring away from it or attributing it to something that's maybe not to do with it at all, because that's where we can actually make some change. What's your sense on that? And have you seen any useful solutions? It's, it's incredibly difficult to attribute it and generally against the interests of anyone involved to attribute it fairly um if you're if you've made a, a genuine mistake or error or there's been some failure that you've been involved with and that's being investigated it's probably unlikely to be entirely your fault but you might be in a collection of people who were involved in that the in, your incentive to 
untangle the web of how you got there and find out actually it was you is <laughs> is actually is quite low and it's a, it's about the culture of an organization and the business and the culture of a organization is about we heard lots of buzzwords around culture which are generally nonsense on powerpoints that doesn't mean anything but culture as i see it is about what behaviors do you encourage and incentivize and if you encourage and incentivize people to identify issues even if they were involved in those issues or mistakes occurring then you're much more likely to create an environment where you can develop overcome learn from mistakes if you don't do that and you say to people well you made you might have made this mistake so you're not getting promoted this year then you know exactly what <laughs> the consequences are of that but i see much more of the latter than i do the former in the, in creating the right types of, of culture and too often Lip service is paid to the culture around learning from mistakes, but it's not really evident in the the incentives or the reward structures of, of businesses. I think I'd agree with that. I think I'd also add on top of that that using a simple framework to actually be able to label certain types of failure is important. It may be, and it perhaps should be, an impediment to our career if we keep on making basic failures, preventable failures. That's something that we're clearly not doing correctly. But taking the notion of a complex failure and perhaps being able to extend that a little bit further to different types of complex failure, I think one allows us to group things together, potentially learn from them, and try and build more effective solutions. But there just are certain types of things in the game that we can't predict and that will come out of left field that are genuinely exogenous factors. And if we can actually name those and move forward from them, it, it just feels like it can make things lighter and, more importantly, allow us to try and find a solution that will work. I think what's also really useful is to explicitly build that into part of the process. So if you have a decision-making process, then have an explicit part of it where you say, and at this step, we will review the things that we have got wrong. And then you put it out there front and center. Not You're not hiding away the fact you make mistakes. You're saying, I know we're going to make mistakes. Uh, I will make mistakes. Team will make mistakes. And it's part of the process. And step X of the process is to assess them in this way. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to be open and honest about those things. I think that's really important for, for creating the, the right culture. And it's easy to throw around terms like, post-mortem and pre-mortem and not do them properly and not give them the weight they they deserve. I think the other issue that's really important is thinking about who should own these types of um, analysis. Always a bit difficult if it's someone outside of the team looking at who's made the mistakes because it can feel slightly confrontational. But as I mentioned earlier, if you assess mistakes from within the team, you do come across incentive problems pretty quickly as well. So you need to think really carefully about how you're going to engage with with the inevitable mistakes and, and failure that are part of all of our lives. And that brings us nicely on to the second point that Amy Edmondson mentions, which is aversion. And the key point here is, and I think it comes to that issue that you raised earlier uh, about the team's notification, is that it's just an instinctual reaction. We don't like to feel negative emotions. We don't want to feel we're in the wrong. We don't want to feel blamed for anything. And the key way of actually dealing with that is just reframing things away from failure and error towards learning. I'm sure we've both had experiences of managers or teams that have got this right or wrong. It's a simple idea. It's not always easy to do in practice. 
but it's perhaps the only thing that will work culturally in this area. As you just said, mistakes are going to happen. We just need to acknowledge that and live with it. It's how we deal with them and manage them on an ongoing basis that's perhaps more important. I think that's right. And I'd like to highlight that I recently managed to find out how to turn off notifications. So during the recording of this episode, I made a, a basic process mistake. I've reflected on it and also resolved it. I'm feeling quite proud of myself now. Not only that, you did it in real time. Yeah. But Paul and I do do live in a quite strong blame culture between each other. <laughs> blame less, Joe. Blame less. Uh, that brings us nicely onto the last point of fear we're not afraid of fucking up in front of each other uh but fear is a type of aversion but the the idea of either being blamed kicked out of the group the fear of losing respect it's such a powerful driver of human emotion and the only way that i think we can make this work is building a strong culture of psychological safety and if you get that right it really can turn people's engagement levels round on this people who wouldn't talk about things can talk about things and paul if you're if you're starting from zero at an organization haven't really thought about the, of the concept of psychological safety and you're going in to talk to talk to a business about it what would be the starting point for you how do you how do you lay the foundations of of approaching the the subject and hopefully applying it in a in a in a reasonable way so you've highlighted three issues, the starting point, good foundations, and applications. If I think about the work that I've done in this area, the starting point has usually come from a leader, whether that's a chair or CIO wanting to improve group performance. That can be around creating a more inclusive environment, dealing more effectively with failure, or creating the dynamics for more effective collaboration or risk-taking. They generally get the concept of psychological safety and see its value. However, that isn't usually the case for everyone on the team. So in terms of foundations, it's getting people up to speed with what psychological safety is and isn't, how it works and how it can create value. Now, there's a really wide body of evidence showing how it can prove outcomes. The key is being able to talk through this in the context of the day-to-day -day challenges that the group faces and helping them see how creating high levels of psychological safety can make life easier for everyone and create better outcomes for them as a team. And of course, the challenge is always to do this in a way that's engaging, that keeps people interested. In terms of applications, this is the really fascinating but tricky bit. There are some general rules and processes for creating psychological safety. The challenge is how you can build them into the day-to-day -day workings of a team in a way that makes it easy for them to use on an ongoing basis. That has to be driven by a deep understanding of the context of the team and the decisions that they make. So let me ask you a final question. We discussed a whole range of factors today. If you had to take away one thing that you think is most likely to be useful in most places, what do you think it would be? So I think it's categorizing the types of mistakes that you are likely to make within your role as an individual or as a team. So being upfront about that, and that could be the categories that I talked about in my blog post, it could be the categories that Amy Edmondson's talked about in her um, incredibly successful work, but just some way of thinking about these are the types of mistakes that are ingrained in the work that we do. 
then at least once you have a starting point for categorizing them, then you can start thinking clearly about how to deal with them, how to manage them, and how to build them into part of part of the, a natural feature of your of your process. I think that's entirely sensible. I think for me, it's about the role of leadership in setting cultural tone and really just consistently reminding people that we are human. Um, to err is human. It's really what we do with it that counts. 